Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thanks so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the one rail story with my friend, Bill Catania. How's it going, Bill? It's going great. How are you? Excellent. Bill, I'm looking forward to the podcast interview here. So uh, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're at. Yeah, Bill Catania, founder and CEO of OneRail. We're a final mile logistics solution and you know, based in Orlando, Florida, based here uh, in the U.S. And, and real excited to be here with you today. Excellent. Excellent. So you're, you're based in Orlando down with the mouse. Uh, excellent. Uh, <laughs> yes. So you do final mile, you said, is that what, is that what you specialize in? We do. We, we specialize in the final mile. You know, it's a unique solution and that we have an operating system for final mile delivery. I think it's also been referred to as an orchestration platform, but that's connected to over 9 million drivers. So we have the capacity at the ready with our 9 million drivers. On top of that, we're actually managing the deliveries here in Orlando. We have a logistics management team that are managing exceptions. And we've now also gotten into sort of the micro fulfillment game with uh, you know the capability to place inventory in the market close to consumers and businesses. So that's what we need. Yeah, you put all four of those things together and you have OneRail. So did OneRail start as a tech company or did it start kind of as a logistics company that was uh, managing final mile stuff? It started with a disgruntled customer known as myself. So we <laughs> I was standing in a in a home improvement center to not be named and I had purchased a refrigerator and this is really what started the journey for me. You know, I, I bought the refrigerator they told me it would take uh, 10 days to have it delivered. Oh, nice. Very nice. Like like, <laughs> like you had 10 days to wait. Right. And I'm looking <laughs> right at it. Right. All the food's like rotting in coolers. So I'm looking right at it. I'm all excited. I'm going to have it. And then I'm not going to have it. So that's how this got started, you know, for me. I started out in the industry, you know, spending a few months learning about the space. Uh, I didn't come from this space. I built and scaled retail technology platforms, notably in the digital coupon space, but nothing in supply chain or logistics. So I had to get smart on the industry, get smart on on everything from home moving to delivery, take that knowledge and sort of bootstrap the first build of what became a digital courier platform. And so we were like an on-demand courier. Think of it as, as gig economy moving and delivery. Did that in one market for a while. And then I, I really had the idea, hey, I need to be a platform. I need right. to aggregate supply. So that's how we got where we are. We started out very humbly, you know, as a, as a digital courier, but then moved into a platform focused business. Excellent. Excellent. What's what you described is I think a lot of people are going through right now with, you know, there's a shortage of, of people out there. It seems seemingly across most industries and, you know, obviously the home improvement store you're talking to, nobody wants to say, yeah, you'll have your stuff in 10 days. Right. And it's funny. I hold my tongue. I don't ever bitch at people about this kind of stuff. But my first thought is always like, I know it's not that guy's fault, but man, you're just like, I always say, next time you talk to your boss and your boss's boss about this, tell them how unreasonable this is. <laughs> not you. I know you're not making the rules, but somebody making the rules really failed here. <laughs> it's funny. The, the term you just used is unreasonable. And that's the term that I've used to describe this over. I've probably told this story 2 million times, right? 
And the we'll term do it one value, more time. <laughs> no, one more time. The term is commercially unreasonable. It was commercially unreasonable that it would take 10 days to get a refrigerator. And when it, when it was only a half a mile from the house. So thankfully I had an F-350 and I just went home and got my, you know, my truck. And Well, I don't know which, which one of those home improvement centers it was, but um, I know at least some of the home improvement centers, you can rent a truck there, like a, a, a pickup truck. For, and I was like, every once in a while I drive by or when I'm walking by, I should say, I look and go, that'd be kind of cool. You just load it up with the truck and be, be back in a few hours. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that's emerged over the past few years. You've seen you've seen that that model emerge, which is sort of a do it yourself. But when you've got a right, you get to a you get to a place in your life where you're like, I worked all week. I don't <laughs> want to have to go move freight over the weekend. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, Bill, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? What, well, give us some of those career highlights before you founded OneRail. I grew up in Western New York. South of Buffalo, right on Lake Erie, a little town called Westfield. Sounds balmy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, tropical. <laughs> it's, it's, the rain, it's the rainforest, except it's below 32 degrees. So it becomes the snow the snow capital of the world for a little while. Not uncommon to get, you know, a couple, two, three feet of snow overnight in the form of lake effect. Uh, I grew up on a Concord grape farm. We, we sold our grapes to Welch's. I was going to say, that's what they, that, aren't they based in uh, Concord? So Welch's, it's ironic, the, the, the Welch family came, you know, they, they proclaimed Concord Mass now as the headquarters, but the headquarters lived in a little, my little town of Westfield for, you know, the better part of 40 years. And it's where the epicenter of the grapes are. That's where they realized that they could scale the cultivation of those vines because the warm, the warm temperature on Lake Erie insulates the grapes during the cold winter. And, and it's perfect growing conditions. So if you go two or three miles inland, you can't grow grapes like you can right on the lake. They make wine up there too, I take it? Yeah, they do. Yeah, there's a wine industry. If you've ever heard of Mad Dog 2020? Oh, yeah, once or twice. <laughs> so I won't I'm a Boone's that. Farm man back in the day. <laughs> most of the New York state wines are coming out of the Finger Lakes, which leads to where I went to college. I went to college at Cornell. My focus was economics and business management, and uh, I minored in political science. Wait, is that an Ivy League school? It is. Yeah, we Cornell. Nice. We, grow, we grow the Ivy because Cornell has an ag focus and a, and a really good ag program and, and veterinary science program, and so Cornell's motto is "We grow the Ivy." <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that's a great school. I mean, again, any any Ivy League school is. Well, at least they have the reputations being really good. So I'm assuming I, I didn't go to there. <laughs> it's funny. I, I joke about it now as I went to what I would say every school in southeastern Michigan. So now I'm like, I don't know, they're all the same. <laughs> Somebody had to bring the curve down. I guess that was my job. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, when you're growing up, do you have part-time jobs? Do you work? Were you an athlete? What did you do as a kid? Yeah, kind of all of the above. I uh, I was very, very entrepreneurial. You know, I... I, I when I realized that I was an entrepreneur and, I, and this is what I wanted to do forever, you know, I, I was still in college. But once I got out and started to start companies and, and sell companies and do what I do, I started to think, when did I start doing this? And so it caused me to go back in the Wayback Machine, you know, to first or second grade when I would I would go around and I would charge my classmates to draw pictures for them. So I would I would get a quarter here and 50 cents there and you know, one kid would say, hey, I want you to draw me a semi. And I draw a semi and I get paid. And then that evolved into I, I developed a school uh, class newspaper, did that for a while. 
the rich kids had printers. I didn't. So I had to like, I was like a monk. I had to write all mine, you know, how many copies I needed. And then the third business I had in school was uh, selling baseball cards, which I actually did pretty well selling baseball cards, but I've always worked, you know, I've always done my own thing, except for when I've been between startups. And, um, you know, as far as sports goes, I was, I was very active in football and powerlifting. I was New York State powerlifting champion. No way. Junior in high school. Yeah. And I played at Cornell for a year. I, I, I realized that I didn't love football. You know, college sports forces you to decide that you don't have a choice whether you love it or not. And if it's a like, you know, you're not going to spend six hours a day on a like. You're going you're gonna to spend that if you love it. And my, my bigger passion, it wasn't that I didn't love football. I love auto racing more. And so I've been a driver. I've been driving race cars since I was 17. I still do it. I don't know what's more dangerous, but neither one is safe. <laughs> if there's risk, I'm running right at it. That's uh, it's kind of my MO. Oh, yeah, at over 100 miles an hour. Well, um, yeah, the reason I ask about the sports and where you worked, I just always trying to get a sense for what people did as children, at, as entrepreneurs. And I, I sometimes say this. I, I, I grew up playing sports, and I, I think playing at the college level is fantastic. But even playing – Little League and high school ball, you just realize, uh, you know, how to win, how to lose, how to play as, with the team, how to grind, right? And uh, guys, I always say the guys that play at college ball, they really learn great time management. Oh, uh, yeah. Because there's no way to be a student and do that part-time job. Well, now it's a part-time job. Before it was just a scholarship athlete. <laughs> it's a job. I mean, it, it was, you know, I, I never realized how intense it could really be until I got a report card when we would review the footage from the previous day's practice and we had 70 or 80 plays to review and they would literally go by position by play. So do the metrics on that math. You're watching the same thing five times because I was on the offensive line. So everybody on the line and then next play, everybody on the line. So every time we reviewed a play, it was five reviews and you had a letter grade on your play. And so then they would start asking, Bill, why was your head it looked like it was two inches off. Why was that? Why was it like that? And I, I'm supposed to know. I don't know. I'm trying to do my best. It was in the moment. You so, see that? You see that 300 pound guy that hit me the play before? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't the biggest guy. I mean, I, I weighed more, but I wasn't very tall. But yeah, anyway, it was a lot of fun. You know, sports shaped my, for no question, sports have shaped my competitive drive. And, and, and growing up on a, on a grape farm was no, you know, was no pushover either. That was helpful to, to be out there in the dead of winter, you know, trimming grapes. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there wasn't much to do in the summer, but, but in the winter, in the fall, there was a lot to do. In the spring, there was a lot to do. So between that and I had a landscaping business, I stayed pretty darn busy. Yeah, dude, you were busy. So what did you study at Cornell? Business economics and management. So economics and business management with a minor in political science. I, uh, I thought I wanted to be a politician. You were busy. Yeah, I thought I wanted to be a politician. I worked on Capitol Hill when I was still uh, in school. I did an internship with uh, Senator Sam Brownback, who is the Kansas senator that took Bob Dole's role when Bob ran for when Dole ran for president. And I had a connection to, to Brownback. I was the uh, so this was the biggest thing I did in high school. Period. And out of high school, I was the national vice president of Future Farmers of America. And it gave me an opportunity to travel for two years before I started college, uh, met some amazing people, 46 states, seven countries, over 120,000 miles at the age of 19. And it was, it was the best, it was the greatest blessing ever at, at that age to be able to do that. 
and and then you dropped it all and said, I'm not going to be a farmer. I want to do something else. Way to go. I wouldn't say I'm not going to be a farmer. I, so we still have the family grape farm. And yeah, right. <laughs> I think I have a few, I still have a future in farming. It's just not yet. We're working on transportation and, the, and supply chain. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm in Michigan. We have a lot of, uh, in Western Michigan and then Northern Michigan, they make a lot of wine up there now. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Everybody and their brothers got wineries up there. Welch's has factories in, in three states, if I remember. One of them is New York, where I came from. The other is Michigan, and the third is the state of Washington. Yeah, we're we're top ten egg state over here. No one thinks of us that way. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I think I think Madonna Madonna has a, a winery up up north. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, a lot of people in Traverse City have wineries now. Anyway, so what was your first gig out of school? So when I was still in college, I I did an internship for uh, what's now Altria. It used to be Philip Morris, and I uh, my internship. This was my junior year was working on the Marlboro menthol brand in Buffalo, New York, very narrow focus. And so that internship turned into a really great job offer. You know, ironically, I reported to a guy who is one of my closest friends and somebody who's very involved in OneRail. His name is Neil Ackerman. And Neil invented Amazon Small and Light. He was the GM of that business unit. Uh, today, he runs innovation and transformation at Johnson & Johnson, and he's an advisor to OneRail. So 22 years later, I'm still connected with my uh, the guy that I reported to when I was an intern, but worked on that, had a great job offer. They gave me a territory to run after I graduated, but I decided to instead start my own company. So when I was at Cornell, I raised a little bit of capital from a family down the road in Binghamton, New York, and, and I built a company called RaceFan. And so took a passion, auto racing. And I built an online property that got 20, 20 million views a month called racefan.com. It was, it was immense traffic. We had news from the racing industry coming in around a thousand articles a week. We became an aggregator and a clearinghouse of racing news. And we resold that data to magazine companies like Prime Media, Fox Sports. We syndicated to them before there were APIs, which wasn't very easy. And then we also aggregated the marketing rights of over 600 racetracks across the country. And we delivered marketing programs for Valvoline, the U.S. Army, and Ford. So we built a really unique business. Um, and I, I was able to do that. All. How many years did you do that for? So I started it in 2000 and I exited it in 2004. So it was a four-year run for me on that. Was it just you or did you have partners? I had, so I had one investor. It was a family, you know, that had had a lot of success with startups uh, of their own. Uh, in the coupon industry, it was the the Stanton family made a real big name for themselves. Sold their business to the entertainment book. If you're familiar with the entertainment book, they had a version. Yeah, of that yeah, brand. of course. Yeah, thirty or and that actually gave me my affinity for coupons, which was my next business. But anyway, I had the Stanton. I was uh, as a kid, we used to have to sell those entertainment books for hockey yep. to raise money, or for football <laughs> to raise money, or whatever. Yeah, we all. Right. And, and it's funny, everybody always had them because all the neighborhood kids would be like, "Hey, I'm selling these." <laughs> so, so Ray Stanton, you know, was instrumental in in my career. You know, he was the first really successful, you know, startup entrepreneur that I had ever met. He was looking for one startup to invest in at Cornell. He chose mine. And my business plan was was RaceFan. And so built that company. You know, he was my key partner. And then we brought in one other partner that had a lot of mergers and acquisitions experience. Our plan was to actually go acquire racetracks as well. But we really just ever focused on the dot-com and, and the marketing. And so 
it was great. So why did you sell it? Was it was it like, hey, this is just time to exit because it's getting frothy, or what was your thought? Like, I'm I'm exhausted, uh, or this <laughs> cash in? What was the wow. what was there, the thinking? There was no wearing me out. You still can't wear me out. The thing, the thing that and, I, and I'm and I'm very transparent about this. You know, you learn a lot of lessons in a in a startup, and when you're doing your first one, the hard way, <laughs> the hard way. You know, we brought in that third business partner, and it wasn't the best idea. And he didn't really align with how we thought about the business. You know, I was much younger. You know, I was in my early early twenties, and my partner was was a lot older, which is certainly not an age thing. But he had a lot more sophistication around what he understood and, and how startups work. And it just made sense for me to sell my portion out to him and, and to, uh, to the Stantons. So I got out of that, you know, and, and I was able to have a fairly positive exit back to them. But it was really disappointing. You know, we, we had a lot of chapters to write. You know, there was a lot more we could have done there to make that business successful. We were cash flow positive, which was a big accomplishment. But, you know, that wasn't meant to be my my first big exit, you know, so thankfully that came on the next one. Yep. The reason I ask is, and I appreciate you being open about it, is it is always difficult because I think the nature of any sort of partnership is, you know, one day you're giving 60, 70% of it and they're giving the 20, you know, 30, 40% of it. And then the next day it switches. And then at some point though, you go, this is long-term. I'm not feeling right about this. If you're working 60 hour weeks and they're working... 40 hour weeks at a certain point, you start looking at each other or they've invested this much and they expect it to be worth this. And there's always that dynamic that is difficult. Yeah. I, I can tell you, I, I feel blessed to have the investors I have in one rail, you know, ideologically, we're all aligned on what we're trying to do. They're, they're helpful. And the people that I've surrounded myself with on the leadership team, you know, we're very, I, you have to be ideologically aligned. It's a lot like marrying somebody, right? You, you have to think, it, it, to some degree, not the same, but you have to be rowing in the same direction with where the business needs to go. And, you know, if you don't have that, it creates strife, especially in an early stage startup. Yeah. So what was your next biz? Well, the next biz was pretty, pretty exciting. It was called MDOT. And that business, you know, I had had a non-compete in motorsports. So when I sold my shares, you know, I had to go do something different for a little while. So I went back to my Cornell days, I did a lot of work, you know, going back to Philip Morris and brand marketing and, and CPG marketing. I took a role at an ad agency called Benzer, and we developed products for the private label industry. We developed an energy drink called Inked for 7-Eleven and cereal for Kroger. And it was a fun job. It, it employed a lot of my skills that I learned in the classroom that I was able to actually apply. And about it lasted about eight months. You know, I started doing some things I shouldn't be doing shouldn't have been doing, which was to start thinking about a tech startup and how we can maybe incubate one while I was still at Benzer. And what came out of it was, was MDOT. And what we built at MDOT today powers more than 50% of all digital coupon volume in the United States. What, what the platform did, another first, was connect the cloud, which in 2009 and 10 was kind of a foreign concept. Right. Yes. We connected it to the cash register in tier A leading grocery chains so that every transaction that went through the cashier scanned all those SKUs and the shopper ID would go up to the cloud. It would reconcile against coupons that the shopper had selected before they shopped. They might've selected them on coupons.com or one of the leading coupon sites, or even on the retailer website. And then it would shoot a message back down to the cash register whether with valid coupons that have been applied to the order. And then it would all print out on the receipt, just like a paper coupon. So 
Uh, I won the Amazon Global Startup Challenge in 2010 because we were the first company to ever do that. Wow. And, and then uh, we sold the company. I sold the company to another company called Inmar, which is the leading processor of paper coupons. And Inmar being a market leader, you know, was the best thing I could have done. Uh, we had a great CEO there who had a vision for digital. And I went and moved to Winston-Salem, North Carolina to be at Inmar and to run that digital business unit until we sold Inmar. So it was a, it was a, it was a hell of a run in a, in a great learning. Nice. So when did that all end up? When did they finish up there? So I, yeah, I sold MDOT in 2011 and moved to Winston. And then in 2014, about this time of year, we sold Inmar to a private equity fund. And it was about a year after that, that the ideation for this started. So it's, it's literally been the sequence of these three startups in my life. Yep. So now you're in Orlando. Did you move down to Orlando at some point? I did. So, you know, in and about somewhere between 2015 and 16, you know, had a divorce and with that, that. <laughs> started kind of a new life in Orlando uh, where I met a wonderful woman and she's my co-founder in this business. She's also my wife and her name is Lisa. So, and, and Lisa today, nice. of customer success, she runs all customer implementations and support. And, you know, it was her and I at the kitchen table that really conceptualized OneRail and, and you know, I've had her you know, at my hip and, or I've been at her hip, I'm not sure, you know, through the whole journey. Right. Well, awesome. So what year did you start OneRail? Well, so we incorporated OneRail, uh, basically the first of the year in 2018. And, you know, we went out to market, not as OneRail, but as Zapped, you know, and that's that courier business that I told you about. It was, it was about a year of being a courier in multiple states that we realized we're not doing anything exciting here. Like what we do is really cool. It's great that you can go to our app and within an hour, somebody shows up at your house. But the problem is there's a lot of great companies like Rody. There's companies like Delive at the time. There's companies like Postmates that are out there doing a really good job. Now, is that the same as like Instacart or Shipped or are those that's more grocery? Slight difference. So Instacart and Shipped, they administer the labor in the store to pick the product. That's more of a shopping marketplace. We were just moving things hotshot point A to point B. Okay. In cars, in cars, mostly? Most, mostly trucks. So what made Zap different was that we were focused on big and bulky. So we did. Oh, yeah. Home, yeah, we did home moves. We would so have, like a, you do a mattress or a, a stuff that would yeah. be too big for the average. We would have moved that refrigerator from Lowe's if, if somebody would have allowed us. <laughs> right. Don't mention any names. <laughs> no, I'm teasing you. They don't care. I love Lowe's. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, if, if if there was somebody standing at Lowe's, we would have. We would they, they call, yeah, yeah. Hey, call call Bill. He'll help you guys. He'll straighten things out there. So you started as you said as as zapped, and tell about the change that that I don't know if you call it a pivot or whatever you yeah. call it. When did you make that the change to your current business model? It's so funny, Joe, because a lot of I think the word pivot half of startup founders are afraid to use it, and the other half are proud to use it. I'm proud to use it. So the pivot was real simple. You know, we had been we had been out there, you know, in multiple markets now for for a little over a year. And and we saw the same trend as we started talking to enterprise customers, American tire distributors. You know, everybody knows that's OneRail's first national customer. I was talking to Bill Hancock who was running supply chain there, and Bill, Bill is the one that really opened my eyes to why we needed to make this pivot. We already were thinking about the pivot, but Bill was probably one of the biggest inspirations to me in that pivot. 
and, and, it, and it went through our first conversation. I said, Bill, why are we on the phone with you today? What problem can we solve for ATD? And Bill said, customers need tires and they need them fast because the customer's rewired. There's the Amazon mindset. Uber and Lyft have changed how people think about, you know, everything. Everything's on demand. Instacart. People, when they go to a tire shop, they want to make sure they can get their tires in that same visit. They don't want to come two days later and, and, and get their tires. They want it now. So, uh, Bill, you know, Bill's instruction to me was, you know, it's a really fragmented supply that's out there of couriers. The visibility of couriers is really difficult. It's not consistent. It was really difficult to contain and control costs. And it was really difficult to ensure on-time delivery in 90 minutes or less at, at a reasonable rate, you know, above 90%. And so with all those data points, you know, and I asked the question, where do you log in? Where do you log in to run a report? That was my favorite question, and it still is. And if you tell me, well, there's nowhere to log in, well, that tells me you need a platform. When you're starting to orchestrate all these pieces, you, you, you need that. Right. Another question, Joe, was how, you know, if you have eight tires or one tire, how do you decide how big of a vehicle comes? Like, how does all that work? So it was really just me being curious, me asking questions, and then realizing I'm really good at building platforms. Like that's what I've done my whole career, the coupon business and motorsports media business. And I realized what I need to do is stop being a courier. Don't be a courier anymore. There's companies out there that are really great at that. And what I need to do is focus on building software that solves problems and, and building a solution that solves problems. Yeah. And if I could just clarify, because this is this is becoming a pattern on my podcast lately, people saying platform. And I think it's a really important distinction between, and I, I'll use myself as an example, and Bill, I suspect you had some of the same journeys. We've always had software in the last 30 years, whatever it is. Right. But you go, like I was an automotive guy and we find ourselves in these DOS-based systems where you're like tabbing over to fields. It was very difficult. It'd, it'd always be like, oh, there's another screen for that. And sometimes they're HR systems. Sometimes they were, you know, financial systems, but they weren't customer facing. Right. And so if you're an employee or say, hey, Bill, you will use this. It is a condition of your employment. If you want to get paid this week, you go into that HR system. It didn't matter how clunky or inconvenient it was, you used it. Flash forward to today, now we have customers, yes. all of us, who are used to using platforms. And we, I, another way to say is like an app, right? I'm used to using apps the yeah. same way where Zillow is a platform. Where I go on Zillow, I that my customer experience is through that app. I never have talked to somebody from Zillow. So if I'm online and I'm looking for a house and I have that experience, then I go to the, over the app. Same great experience, slightly different. But the point is, when I say platform, I mean it's customer facing as opposed to the old way that I never called those other things that were in the background platforms. And increasingly, the platform is the customer experience or big part of it. And it doesn't have to be all of it, but it's a big part of it. And it has to be intuitive because we are all spoiled by the consumer technology. We use Facebook, we use Zillow, you use DoorDash, you all use these. And if I and if I go over to OneRail and Bill says, "Yeah, you'll get used to it. It's clunky," they'd be like, "Get the hell out of my office!" Right? It has to have that experience. And and to me, my podcast consult called it consumer tech grade experience. And if we don't get it, it's it's become so obvious if you don't get it. And if if somebody was to say, "Hey, it's really easy. You just go to our." 
uh, you, you get a training session for four hours. You're like, oh, is it? No, no, no. I don't want, I don't want like a four hour training session. I used to use some 3PL software that I loved because we had to train 300 users to use it. And it was intuitive enough that it took 15 minutes, maybe 10, five. It was real quick. And that's what it has to be. It can't be, this is, you know, you need to be certified to use it. <laughs> so you've, you've brought up an interesting point. You know, there, there's systems out there like AS400 and there's, there's, there's old, you know, 20, 30 year legacy technology that's still running enterprises. And we, we never really thought of them as much as a platform. I've never really thought about it that way. But I think what makes OneRail a platform or any enterprise, you know, modern day platform, you know, it's distributed computing. It's it's a it's data driven decisioning, right? It's decision that's made based on data and it's decisions that can be automated and optimized where multiple systems can talk at the same time. Removing that my, my, my COO, Jeff Flowers, calls it swivel chair, where I'm going to look at this screen. Boom. And now I'm going to do this over here and then I'm going to do this over here. That swivel chair effect is what we've made go away by interconnecting a whole entire ecosystem. Right. And that's what that's what to me. And then and then the final thing is not only you have rules in there that make decisions, if then, then this and then event driven real time uh, messaging is really critical. I, you know, you think about, I heard uh, somebody say this, I actually, I heard Joe Rogan say this, I thought was interesting is he said, you know, if you were going to, at some point implant everybody with computer chips into their head, what would be the first step? And it would be, well, I'll sit them down at a computer every day and have them take information out of their head and other people's heads and other systems and put it all in there. And, and I was thinking, yeah, that's, and you mentioned the swivel swivel head where you're moving between multiple screens and a lot of freight brokers, a lot of people in this industry are doing that. We, in a sense, we become human APIs. That's yes, what we are. That's, that's what right. we are. And at some point you want to say, no, I don't want you to have to be able to look at this screen on pricing and this screen on authority and this screen on, on a load board. I got to get that all in one place. And ideally that's that platform. And and stop treating the the uh, humans as if uh, you have to act like a machine because a lot of times that's what you're doing. You're just taking information from one system and using it for another. Absolutely, I like the term human API. That's that's uh, very appropriate. Yeah, and we've got to get out of that mindset because again, this business, it, what we're seeing in I'll say any intermediary is going to become more and more automated. So I tell people, yeah, I talk to a lot of young people every week not just on the podcast, but even on the phone. And I always say the same thing is a lot of the stuff that you're doing is going to be automated soon. And those systems can make better decisions than you can. And by the way, I'm, I'm old enough to say this because I, I had a buddy who was on Chicago Board of Options. And I used to say to him 20 years ago when I go visit him on the exchange, hey, this is going away, don't you think? Don't you think a computer will do your job? And he's, you know, he's one of the open <laughs> outcry guys. And he said, yeah, yeah, at some point it will. And it did. He's a teacher now. Yeah. Which was, which he was ready to move, but it was uh, a lot of the stuff that I did early in my career was I was an engineer and a designer. All that stuff moved to the CAD system. And it's so fast now that it, for, for one CAD designer today, probably replaced 50 from 30 years ago. Yeah. Anyway, so you mentioned your first big customer was this tire company. What was the name? Yeah. American Tire Distributor. So they, uh, they're the largest tire distributor in the United States. They have about 120 warehouses and 
They've been a tremendous partner to us. You know, we're lucky to have customers that are also partners. So describe, just just so I understand, describe how they work with you. So let's just say they they want, somebody bought tires. How do they work with you guys? Step by step. Yeah, great question. So they have plenty of trucks, right? They have 1,500 trucks. They have one of the, the larger fleets, largest, I believe, in the tire industry. But, but as a, a private fleet, it's one of the larger fleets in the country. And uh, their trucks are out there every day. They're routed, very intelligent design. But along comes this expedited opportunity where customers all of a sudden, you know, when they walk into a, a tire shop and those tires aren't there, and tires typically aren't always in stock because they're really big and they cost a lot. So the concept of having every permutation of tire on the shelf is really low. That's yeah, too expensive. If you have 1,500 locations, you can't have, I mean, I guess you can, but it'd be a very high inventory carrying cost to have them all. Right. ATD has a long history of making supply chain their competitive advantage. And it has to be. You have to deliver that tire on time and accurately every time. So they had the vision, you know, to start putting together this program. It's called ATD Express. It's an expedited tire delivery program for tire shops and repair shops. And when a customer walks into a tire shop and, and they have a Suburban, it's a, uh, let's say it's a 2018 Suburban, you know, the, the clerk at the tire shop will look at the screen and say, we have two in stock, but we need to get two in. You know, normally like pre-Express, pre-Amazon wired customer, right. You know, the conversation would go something like this. Hey, the truck will be in in two days. You know, we can have those here. Can you come back in two? Now, you've already left work, right? You want to get your tires changed. Today, it's different. If they say two days, the customer leaves. They go to the next tire shop. Right. And so, or or the other thing that happens, the tire shop orders from three tire distributors and sees which one shows up first. And the other two get to get sent home if they don't get there first. That's what happens. So. Right. ATD, very much in the front of the industry like they always are, decided they were going to build an express program, which is a 90-minute delivery, you know, get the customer out the door in two hours if you're a tire shop. So they had gone down that path and, you know, there was that realization that they needed more predictability, dependability, faster, more on-time deliveries that had cost control and oversight around the whole process. And, uh, you know, one other thing, you, I mean, it's got to be 90 minutes. I imagine they want a little bit of visibility in there too, because if you say, yeah, it'll be there in 90 minutes. Right. I don't want, the next time I hear from you, I don't want it to be 91 minutes where you go, <laughs> couldn't find anybody. <laughs> there, there's tens of thousands of phone calls that, you know, that come in, in a business that size, if you don't provide real-time visibility to the tire shop and then ultimately to the consumer, you know, who's waiting for the tires. So so that started the whole conversation with us and them. And, you know, it started out, we were going to be a courier and then that evolved into, well, one rail's building this, you know, we're going to, we're going to pivot from being zapped to one rail. And, you know, we built our platform and the problem we solved for them, you know, it, it runs automatically when it, when a customer goes into a tire shop and they have that dialogue and they need to get two more tires delivered. As soon as the clerk hits the order button and they order the, the two tires from the warehouse, one rail gets the order you know, it's going through Oracle. We take that data out of Oracle. For example, how many tires, so quantity, the, the, the cubic feet of the tires, the weight of the tires. We use that data. Our platform matches the delivery to the right courier in that market that's contracted on, on the right pricing rate card with, with American tire distributors. 
we provide all the rates to American tire distributors and, and we rate shop, you know, we find the best courier. It's also an algorithm that takes into account on-time rates. So quality and cost are the two big components. And this all happens in 200 milliseconds. This, it happens that fast. As soon as that Oracle order comes in, out goes a dispatch. And let's say we dispatch it to one of our couriers. We have one called Freight. They have Sprinter vans and, and pickup trucks. They have two minutes to accept that order. If they don't accept it, the API will kick it to the next courier in line that ma that's maximized based on cost and, and quality. So let me ask you this. How do you make money within that deal? Do you just get paid a little more by uh, the tire distributor and, and, and make a markup there? Or or is it a transaction fee? How do you guys? Well, it's a great question. You know, we're, we're doing a couple things here. You know, we're providing the tech stack and the full solution and, and it's SOC 2 compliant. You know, data privacy and security is, is at the top of our list. Which, which our customers demand, that platform is a, is a SaaS-based pricing model. So we, we have a software as a service pricing model, a licensing model that our customers pay us for. And then if they elect to use our courier network, we are making some margin on the delivery, but it's more than just the delivery. We're providing an exception management team. So as there's potentially missed, you know, wrong items or addresses aren't correct because Google Maps hasn't updated yet. We have a team based in Orlando that's managing those exceptions for our customers. And then the third thing we also do, Joe, is we provide a completely outsourced carrier courier management solution. That was we, my last question. Okay, I'll, <laughs> I should let you just ask it. But um, we're out there procuring new partners every day of the week. So you have to vet those and are you, do you have insurance for them or you make sure they have insurance or how's that work? Double insurance. So, so we're insured as, as the courier of record, but we also require them to be insured at the same rate. So every contract that we have has insurance requirements. So we, we hold our, our couriers and carriers to those requirements, but we also carry that insurance. So it really is efficient. So, so our customers, our shippers, retailers, distributors, they don't have to go out and, and find carriers and couriers. They don't have to onboard them. You know, we fully onboard them to our solution. And, and the hardest part is managing. You know, if you have a quality issue, you have a carrier that might have 50 markets they can, they can provide deliveries in, maybe there's two or three they're not doing so well. So that requires a conversation. So we're, we're taking a customer success approach to how we manage supply. And it's a true partnership. I was I was at Lyft uh, headquarters last week meeting with the leadership team, including the founder. You know, that's the level of visibility we have with our partners here at the, the headquarters in Orlando. We have our courier partners come in all the time for, for two and three day workshop sessions on how we can scale and get new capabilities together. It, it's interesting. Uh, one of the things that's come on my podcast, come into my purview recently, and I, I kind of blew my mind a little bit is I didn't realize this, that, you know, and there's slightly different business models, but Instacart, DoorDash, Shipped, those companies that go and do sh shopping for you, they exploded during this COVID time when people didn't want to go out. And one of the challenges uh, that I understand from uh, talking to people is the grocery store, oftentimes, the first off, they lose the information on those loads. They don't, they, they weren't, they aren't, I'm now shipped customer. I, by the way, I use Ship. Yeah. Great service. I shopped. I shopped at Meyer, which is a Midwest. Uh, it's like Walmart, except uh, we like to think better. And Meyer, who I shopped with for twenty more, for twenty years plus, all of a sudden I'm not their customer. I'm Ship's customer. 
And right. I became I became aware of that one time when I wanted to return some caffeine-free Diet Coke because <laughs> who would drink that? And I went back to return it and uh, I gave my customer number. They go, oh, we don't have a record of you buying that yesterday. And I was thinking, oh my God, so Shift owns my customer data. They own the customer relationship and Meyer lost money on those transactions. One of the things that's one of the things I've come to realize. So now we we have, I think it's Capstone Logistics is coming in for some of these companies and saying, We'll manage this for you with our with our team and the logistics. And their point was that gig economy person who picked up for shipped or the others, they aren't optimized. We'll optimize your grocery delivery because we're logistics guys, right? And and we aren't going to take your customer. We're not going to start a you know fulfillment business at some point that competes with you. And so it became so as soon as he said that, I was like, yeah, the gig economy I think has some real benefits. We've seen that. Boy, people who do it every time I'm in a a Lyft or an Uber, people are pretty happy to do that job. Oh, yeah. They love it. And my daughter got picked up in a a Lyft like five in the morning. She was uh, at an airport and she called me because she was a little worried, like I'm getting in this Lyft. I don't know this guy. Guy was this guy was an app developer. And he said, yeah, I do this because I'm at my house all day. I develop apps. I never get out of the house. But he said, I've gotten four customers from driving. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but anyway, um, getting back to it, logistics is kind of honing in on that gig economy, not not to get rid of it, but to say, how do we make this as efficient as the rest of logistics? I think that I think the gig economy is here to stay. I think it's going to be people like yourself and other technology guys and logistics guys who are going to say, we're going to make it. We're going to make it lean and mean. Not, not, well, lean and lean and happy. <laughs> well, you, nailed, you nailed it. You know, gig economy, I think, went through what I would call the pilot phase. Yes. Between, <laughs> between like, I don't know, I'm just going to throw it out there. 2015 and maybe maybe COVID, you know, was was a big accelerator. Hey, let, yeah, well, and we ignored it as as the logistics as we ignored it. It was outside our purview. Right. Well, it, it, I think gig economy has a little bit of a reputation of no control over quality and no control over dependability and non-badged. And, you know, how can you trust people you don't know to go do these jobs? You need a platform to make it work. You can do it, but you have to have a platform to manage the quality. And then the redundancy, right? Redundancy is very important. The way that the transportation space has always worked is I have a zip code you know, an array of zip codes and every one of these zip codes relates to, to a carrier or courier. And if the, if it's this zip code, it's this courier. And we've sort of flipped that model on its head. We're saying there's an array of zip codes and there's many couriers. And if this courier just happens to not have capacity at the very second that this delivery is happening, boom, it's going to the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one. We've got 20 or 30 couriers in, in most markets. We're in 250 cities. So to do that, you have to have a platform because that calculation has to be done in real time. It's got to be real time connected and, and it has to be highly redundant. And yes, and, and that's that's the way we've been able to go to market and, and do 30 minute deliveries day in, day out with with 99 percent on time rates. Right. And you think about if you were to say, I'm going to go hire these people, they're all going to be my employees in those markets. It, you, you can't possibly do it efficiently. No. You might be a very effective, but there would be a whole bunch of guys sitting around waiting for orders every day. So, so the gig economy fills in that, I'll call it the bottom layer. 
And, yeah. and it's, I think it's a good opportunity for a lot of people to want to be in their own business, who want the, the flexibility and the control to live their life. I bumped into a guy in Ann Arbor. I live close to there. And he was picking up food at a restaurant. And I was just talking to him. I said, how do you like working with DoorDash? He says, good. He goes, work with DoorDash, Uber, one other. And uh, he goes, I'm an IT guy. And he said, uh, interviewing. So I, I got a kid. I see, take care of her stuff. I go interview and I do this when I don't, when I'm not busy. And he goes, it's fantastic. He goes, it's better than sitting at the house being unemployed and broke. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So a- anyway, um, let's switch gears for a minute. I know your company has grown. Uh, you guys got quite a few uh, people there. You told me when we were prepping that you've also got um, taken venture capital money so you can scale this bad boy. So talk a little bit about not only the growth, but also the inflection points and some of the lessons you learned along the way for, for those who are hoping hoping to duplicate what you're doing. Not the, Not exactly what you're doing. Well, there's, there's probably, I mean, I would be, I would probably be, be ignorant to some degree to not think that there's people that are trying to duplicate what we do. And, you know, I'm one that always believes that there's competitors, right? You have to believe that somebody's always trying to outthink or engineer. You know, our job is to just keep doing a great job for our clients. And part of that mission is to keep evolving. You know, it's evolution isn't a, isn't an independent thing. It should be ingrained in your DNA. At least right. I, I always say if, if right now, if I was shooting to, oh, I'm going to duplicate what Bill Bill's doing up one rail, you'd be happy to tell me, Joe, here's how, I, here's how I did it. And then by the time I got there, you'd be, you'd be three steps higher. <laughs> Hopefully, right. You, one can hope not, not, not guaranteed, but one can hope. So Joe, tell us about the, the, the growth, those the, bringing on those VC partners, but also the growth. You've got a lot of employees down there now. And so, so some of the lessons you learned and some of the inflection points. So if we go back to to February of 2019 or 2020, right before the COVID lockdown, we closed our first round of seed financing. Woo! You know, we, we yeah, it was like like rolling under the garage door as it's one foot from shutting. Because <laughs> things slowed down a lot, you know, in terms of oh, yeah. you know, we're blessed to have Chicago Ventures and Las Olas and Alpine Meridian were three of our early stage, you know seed investors and then bullpen capital came in you know they've had a really great great run over the past 11 years i believe since they had uh, their first investment they've built many you know like FanDuel. you know is, is a bullpen company they're looking for companies that are not quite ready for a series a but but they're going to be close to a series a really quick and so they've specialized in that that sort of band on the spectrum and then most recently we closed a series a financing with iron spring uh, Iron Spring has been a tremendous partner and with participation from all of our investors, you know, all along the way, you know, we've raised about 21 and a half million so far. And we did that in a two year period. The, the team, when we when we closed that February of 20 round, that first seed tranche, we only had nine employees. And, and today we have 110 and uh, we have 30 Ooh. jobs. So it's uh, 30 jobs open down in Orlando. Are you, That's right. You told me when we talked a month ago, you told me they go, well, everybody else is going remote. You guys are getting no, more space down in Orlando. We're doubling the size of our space right now. We took a, we took over an 18,000 square foot uh, office that used to be uh, Expedia here, here in Orlando. We did that last year. So, so the first of, of 2021, we had 35 team members and, and we ended the year, you know, about 85. So we're, we're now at about 110. We expect to be at 200 by the end of the year. We've just doubled that to 36,000 feet. We don't require everybody to be here. You know, we we absolutely, though, 
have built a culture where people want to be here. And we've put a culture in place of can't fail, right? If you think about supply chain and logistics, it can't fail. It has to be bulletproof. Just like when I was running transactions out of a point of sale to the cloud, you know, the things we had to do to prove that it wasn't going to slow the lane down, it wasn't going to fail, it wasn't going to not happen. It was it was unbelievable the, the work that we put into that. And so I've approached this business the same way. It has to be bulletproof. You know, it cannot fail. So having a team, you know, specifically our solution product design team, our core engineering team, our logistics management, exception management team, customer implementation, all here in this office. And we have about 70 team members that report to this office, about 30, 40 that are remote. And we'll probably continue to sort of manage that balance going forward. It's it's a little easier to, to um, develop a culture and a rapport when you're all in the same beehive, right? Oh, yeah. I remember when I was uh, at a logistics company, I, I would come out when I was in my office, I would learn things from, you know, getting emails, talking to customers, whatever. But I would learn just as much walking by the bullpen and hearing what was going on, like who's, you know, arguing about it. I can't get a truck for this lane or <laughs> pricing issues. I would, and, and I, I, I try not to be a busybody, but I could hear all that. And then after a while you go, yeah, I, I, I started to pick up. A, a lot of the chatter, what's going on. That's the informal stuff. But so, yeah. so through all that growth, well, first off, I want you to talk about those inflection points, some of what you've learned about that, that rapid growth, but also if you don't mind, give us the, the, a few bullet points. What's the difference between a seed round and a series A? Yeah. So I'll talk about that. And then maybe at the same time, address some of the inflection points. So, you know, when we put our seed round in place, we had a couple customers, you know, we had a couple customers that believed in us enough, you know, early on to, to, to sign up, you know, for what they knew was a very early new solution. So you have that early adoption, you have early signals that there could be what they call product you, market you've fit. You've proven it out a little bit. Right. Enough. Uh, it looks good in PowerPoint, you know, and we, we can demonstrate that we can get data to run through the system. And now we just need to run it through your system, right? And so you have to prove that. And it takes a level of proof points to get to that, to even that stage. But seed round is really all about, hey, we have an idea. We have some early customers. We have the makings of a leadership team. And we think we know what we're doing. But we, we also recognize that things may change. And and so that's a seed round. You know, you So gotta, the, adv the advantage for the a seed round investors is you're potentially in early and cheap compared right. to what people later <laughs> in series A, C, A, B, A, B, C, D would get, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. naturally, right? The, as the, so that was the first lesson I learned when I, when I had RaceFan and, and I took that first investment from my first ever investor was the risk reward equation. The more risk, the more reward. So our early stage investors, our earliest investors were actually angel investors. They were, they were people like you and me that wrote a check. One of them is Jeff Flowers, who's my my chief operating officer. He started out as an angel investor. So they took like ultimate risk. It was investing in a PowerPoint and a, and a guy, you know, and his wife, and then eventually a small team and, and a, yeah, a little more promise. And then when the seed investors come in, you know, that's venture capital. And and there's a there's a pretty darn good chance that there's line of sight to, to some repeatable revenue. So So that next phase, though, the Series A, You've demonstrated what they call product market fit, meaning there's enough customers to demonstrate a pattern that there's a need for this. This isn't just some crazy idea 
you know, I'll never forget in Erie, Pennsylvania, I went to a startup angel investing like Shark Tank event. And some dude had this this device that would sit on your counter and spin a beer can at like 2000 RPMs to ice it. And so there was ice and it would spin the beer can. That's a good example of maybe not quite product market fit yet. Just a cool idea. You know, you hear, if you ever watch Shark Tank, they, they oh, say yeah, of course. Yeah, it's a hobby, not a business. So we, we get to that Series A phase. We've demonstrated that there's more than 10 enterprise clients. You have a mature leadership team. You, you or at least the makings of a mature leadership team, and you're 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 in the early stages of what what you would consider scale, and and that's uh, that's where that's where we were at back in August. So talk about some of those lessons you learned along the way, because you had to learn some lessons from uh, scaling <laughs> that quick, and you got over a hundred people and uh, hiring thirty more. Well, I think the lesson, the biggest lesson I've learned is, and it's one that it wasn't really that new. I hate to say it. I haven't learned too many new lessons. You know, a lot of you've done this before. (laughs) Yeah. When you, when you've done a startup, you know, like MDOT, which was a super big enterprise scale play, you learn a lot of lessons. So this one, you know, there hasn't been any extraordinarily new lessons, but it's the same thing, you know, serve your customer. It gets back to basics. Listen to your customer. The biggest thing, Joe, that I, that I have to really be careful of is the juice is the juice worth the squeeze? Are we putting enough into this solution to solve the whole problem? And when people ask me who's your competitor, I can't point to one because we're solving problems across three or four different very discrete solutions. So, but that's that what you just described though is so important because one of the I, I talk to a lot of people is your end to end. And you're looking from end to end. Where's the gaps? Where am I? Where, what, where are we dropping the ball? Where are we weakest? Yeah. A lot of times when people say, oh, we got visibility, they're talking visibility from point A to point B. But the people we serve have supply chains that are 16, 18 weeks long. And so they're looking and saying, I, I buy something in China or India or Mexico, and it has to get to this customer at some point. And it's got to stop in our factory and our distribution center and a store in between. That's what they're looking at. And so that's how you just described what you're trying to do, that end to end. It's the end to end. And it's, you know, if I can provide you tracking on your trucks, but I can't connect you to couriers that can do deliveries when your trucks can't, am I solving the problem? You know, and if I can't, and if bad things happen, right, uh, that, that require hands-on involvement and you don't have the staff to do it, then am I solving the problem if I'm not providing that service? So that's why we feel really strongly that this solution yeah, people come here into our office, customers, investors, uh, partners, and like, oh, you guys do hard stuff. Like, yeah, we do. We signed up for hard. We 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 looked at right. hard. Oh, and yeah. Right at it. <laughs> By the way, a lot of fulfillment centers, a lot of companies really like the light stuff. They like the idea yeah. of shipping little things because it's easy. Right. And they and and. And if you can utilize UPS or FedEx, boy, life is good. You've, you guys have taken on the bigger challenge. So, Bill, I know I've gone past our time, but uh, I have still a few more questions for you. So what's what's next for this industry, the, the final mile, what you guys are doing? What's next for the final mile, that industry? What's next for your company? And maybe you could talk a little bit about that micro-fulfillment stuff. And then and then, and then, then, last but not least, what's, what's new next for you? So what's next for you? Your in, your industry and your company. Yeah, so let's start with the industry, and I, and and at the same time, you know, I can describe what's next for the company. We're finding 
we feel really confident that we've solved the transportation problem in the final mile. You know, we're able to make real-time rate shopping and dispatch decisions that are data-driven and empirical decisions across courier, parcel, and LTL and FTL. So, you know, we can rate shop parcel versus courier in real time, make the right decision, kick out a label, manage it here in Orlando. All that stuff happens in the blink of an eye, and we're good at it. Where we see the puck going is being able to now couple micro-fulfillment with that. And so as an industry, you're starting to see more and more, I call them parcel replacement companies. You know, companies like Viho and Pandion have done a good job you know, putting solutions together that really solve kind of a different problem than OneRail does. They're, they're building kind of these micro sorting, they're, they're sorting centers. So taking yeah, their sortation centers, right? Lots of investment. It's a big problem they're solving. We're taking a little bit of a different approach to it where we're not really getting as involved in, in the automated sortation, but having, you know, imagine you have a product on the shelf at Walmart, and you, it takes two weeks if you run out of inventory to get it from, you know, the port to the peg. And imagine if you had enough inventory distributed through a market like Los Angeles in five or six nodes, micro nodes, that could easily replace and replenish that within a one day or even same day signal from, a, from getting that signal. And by the way, this is the larger trend that we're going to see everywhere, which yep. is inventory. If it's going to be same day, next day, or in your case, 90 minutes, right? That inventory has to be close to the consumer. Yeah. And by the way, guys, if you look old malls, I, I grew up in Dearborn, Michigan. <laughs> we have a huge yeah. mall there. That mall, the reason they put it there a long time ago is it's close to all the expressways. It's close to the airport. It's close to the rail. And it's close to an enormous amount of people. And don't be surprised if those places, your old mall, maybe a strip mall becomes that fulfillment center. I mean, I guess it's micro fulfillment. And by the way, one other thing I'll mention, the trend is we used to go to Amazon and say, I'd like to buy a sweater and I'd like to get it in a week or so. Now it it comes in two days sometimes overnight, but yeah, more and more we're buying groceries. We're buying stuff that you wouldn't have bought 10 years ago online. Now you're buying it online tires. T- 10 years ago, there's no going and getting tires, buying them online. I mean, if you, if you, had, if you bought them online, you had to pick them up somewhere. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Now there's installer bases and, and everything else, but yeah. Yeah. So anyway, what's next for you and your company? You talked about the industry. So yeah, my, my, micro fulfillment for OneRail is really the next big chapter. Another thing that's exciting is we're launching OneRail inside of Shopify. You know, we we made a decision two years ago to focus only on the big enterprise channel. And, and that's evidenced by some of our customers that we have. And now what we're doing is we're moving downstream into mid and SMB by exposing our platform through marketplaces. And Shopify is the first big launch that we're going to do that. We're doing it next month. A one-store operator, you know, will be able to go in there, put in the credit card, start paying for the service, and start leveraging our network and our and our platform just like a big shipper would. And uh, we're excited about that. That That's going to drive a lot of growth for and us. And that speaks to another trend that we're seeing a lot is um, you used to look at a transportation management system or any sort of system as it was complete. It did all the functions itself. Now more and more companies like Shopify are saying, we're going to partner with somebody. So you you're, you are connected to them via API. And then when I want to, if I'm at Shopify and I say, I would like to start working with OneRail to help me, I don't have to have some massive integration in six weeks. It's as soon as I sign up, I'm in. You're in. 
It's a configuration. You upload your brand logo. So when a customer gets tracking, it has your, your merchant logo on it and you have access to a 9 million driver network. I mean, it's really novel. So who is your sweet spot? Who do you guys, who are you looking to work with? I mean, who's, who, who's the perfect customer for you guys right now? The, the sweet spot for OneRail, you know, is, a, is, so first of all, the verticals we focus on pretty heavily are retail, no surprise, product distributors, which is pretty broad, healthcare. Give us an example of like a product distributor. What do you mean by that? American Tire Distributors, right? They're a good example. They have products in a warehouse. They don't have a retail storefront. They need to get products to a service center. Another another example would be uh, we do a lot of work with PepsiCo, you know, getting product from a PepsiCo warehouse to, to some of their accounts. And, um, you know, there's various different executions and use cases there that we that we work with them on. So anybody that's manufacturing a product that has to get it to retail or service location or even in the field, you know, working with uh, Sonapar, you know, a large electrical parts group. And do you do any to uh, homes, to consumers? We do. We're, we're doing direct to consumer from store. So so we when we think about Final Mile, Joe, it's agnostic to shipping mode. So there's a lot of LTL, there's FTL, there's parcel, and of course, courier. But the other thing is it's agnostic to use case. We believe that Final Mile can exist because the definition, according to, to Gartner, and I listen to Gartner, is when goods move from one balance sheet to another. So when you go. move from a balance sheet of a, of, a, of a supplier to a factory, that's their final mile, which is different than the final mile from the factory to the warehouse. So what percentage of your shipments are to retail versus or to a, a business versus to a, a home? We're probably maybe 70, 30, 70% B2B, 30% B2C. And we're, you know, as far as modes go, we're heavily weighted towards courier. No surprise, because that's where the volume is in frequency you know, is the, is the hotshot courier deliveries. And those happen across B2B and B2C. They're not really, they don't discriminate. You know, there's a ton of B2B uh, courier business out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, I love, I love what you're doing because again, I feel like it's professionalizing and organizing the gig economy in a way that helps them be more efficient. And, it, and, it, and, the, and, and that is, that's a big deal because while it's a wonderful resource, it, it was outside of logistics, operational control right. in many ways. And it was unorganized. No wrong way to say it. It's just, I think you're making everybody more efficient and more effective with software. And that, and that's what we need. What we found, Joe, when we started, we turned the platform on and, and doing work for Menards Home Improvement, you know, been doing- Oh uh, yeah, they're a Menards. big company. Yep. Up, up uh, your Michigan way. We've been working with Menards now for three years. And um, Menards- you know, we found as we were doing deliveries in Chicago, for example, there was a 5x difference in the bid ask, you know, between the lowest and the highest right. cost courier in our network. Right. When we started aggregating couriers, we could do it for $15 or $88. So imagine having a platform that over time builds a pricing index because we're narrowing that down to a point where it's 5% plus or minus. It's just, as you said, when we open the conversation, you ask, where do you log in? Where are your reports? Right? Yeah. By the way, when I used to sell third-party logistics services, mostly LTL, I got to the place where when I would go meet someone, I wouldn't walk in with it by computer or anything. I would just walk in with a carrier scorecard that I used. And I'd say, this is from one of my customers from last week. I said, do you have that report from last week? And they go, oh, no, how'd you do this? I was like, it, 
it, it's not hard if you try. <laughs> That's a great strategy. It's all about data, right? Do you have this report? And I, and I used to always say, I'm not going to email it to you either. We have a meeting around this report every week. <laughs> so, so on that note, you asked where the company's going, micro fulfillment and Shopify are too. The third and final, you know, kind of big thing that we're doing is we're now building our data science team. We have some huge, you know, like big time it. hires that we're going to announce soon. And we're building out kind of our data science team. And our goal is to bring maturity to the pricing in the final mile, right? It's if you, if you send something through a LTL shipping lane, you're not going to see a 5x difference. You're going to see 5%. So somebody's saying, well, okay, I kind of know what data is. I kind of know what science is. What is a data scientist going to do for this guy? <laughs> so what is that going to do? They're going to cost a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what they do. No, data, 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 big data is really, I think, the next big chapter for OneRail because we're, we're sitting on this data across over 400 delivery companies. You know, again, 9 million driver reach all the different modes, 65 carriers. In addition to the courier base, we have 65 carriers on our network. So if you can imagine, we have the actual performance data, cost, density data. We know exactly what's going on, where and when, and we're able to take that data and continue to drive value for our customers and drive profitability for the carrier. Carriers don't want to lose money any more than shippers right. do. So no, and yeah. it's just, so it's being able to take all this data and make it, Will you auto, add automation at some point on on pricing? We we already do. Okay. Yeah, we already have an automate. We already have automated the pricing. So so a lot of things are automated. The dispatch is automated. The selection of the carrier or courier pricing is a big part of that algorithm and how we automate and, and make that uh, selection. And so the, when you hire those data scientists and you do more and more transactions, at some point it just becomes like we absolutely positively know this is the price for that lane. Because we've done it enough times and we've talked to enough people. There's so much, Joe, when you, when you and I'm going to use an example. I'm not saying this is what's happening. But if we took an auto parts chain and, and we're doing a lot of work with advanced auto parts, uh, they're, they're one of our largest customers. If you take the, the, the demand cycle of when auto parts need to be delivered to repair shops from an advanced auto parts location, that's a really big spike in the morning. We have courier networks that deliver food and some that even do convenience store late night deliveries, right? They're going to have a, a reciprocal demand curve. So they're going to be at low tide at eight or nine in the morning because their drivers are, some of them are sleeping probably, right. but, but some of them are looking for work, right? And they're looking at their day part and they're saying, boy, if I was the, you know, the chief operating officer or the CFO of, of a, a convenience store delivery platform like GoPuff, I would say, hey, I need to boost my revenue between 7 a.m. and 11 a.m. And Advanced Auto Parts is sitting there saying, oh, my gosh, I have all these deliveries between 7 a.m. That's what our platform does. That's why I'm excited. Well, that's why when I mentioned this is this is an operational view of the gig economy, you know, helping them be more successful and at the same time serving your customers. That's what Ops does, right? It, 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 turns, it turns random into predictable. Right. That's a very well condensed way to say that. I think I think um, an old boss yelled that at me once. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really true. I mean, and so yeah, data scientists. I'll never forget when we brought a data scientist in in my coupon business at, at Inmar. We learned that the we we would always open a meeting with, guess what the number one most frequently purchased item is with Tide detergent. <laughs> 
So if you see Tide detergent in a shopping basket, do you want to guess what the most number one most likely secondary purchased item is? Um, this is true, by the way. I don't know. Eggs? Cheez-Its. <laughs> the reality is when you're truly executing a data science play, you can't look at it and just know. There's, there's thousands of dimensions of data that come into play. And we don't even really know why we still. No, but that's that's the that's the crazy thing about AI and machine learning is this idea that you go, well, it's artificial intelligence. I have real intelligence, (laughs) but I also have biases. I also don't see everything. I am not a decision making machine. I I make lots of bad decisions, and 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 then I justify them later with facts. Right? That's that's the human animal. I mean. We do great things, but AI is getting better and better. And those kind of non-intuitive insights is what what we're gaining everywhere. So, hundred percent. Anyway, Bill, thank you so much for sharing what you're doing over there. It's a fantastic story. I mean, congratulations on your success and on what you guys are doing at OneRail. What I'll do is I'll put a link to anything you give me. You know, any marketing assets, your website. I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile. I'll put all those in the show notes and. Uh, are you guys going to be at any conferences coming up here? We are. We're going to be at Modex. You know, we'll be available there. Uh, we're going to be at the Last Mile Delivery Show in Las Vegas. And a big one that's coming up, we're the host sponsor of the Florida Supply Chain Summit. All Open right. There. I'm, I'm introduced to the governor. When is that? That's coming up uh, the end of this month, the 21st and 2nd of March. Good time to be in Florida and a good time to be out of the Midwest and the Northeast. Absolutely. It's going to start getting hot here then. <laughs> well, you guys win the winter, but we win we win summer up here. Yeah, but that's summer. <laughs> it's like where I grew up. Yeah. Do they have summer in upper New York? <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's identical to yours. It's the best summer ever. It doesn't get better than that. Right on the lake, got that breeze and uh, 80, 80 degrees, 78 degrees and breezy. It's the best See, that's day. not here. That's We get like 90 and humid over here. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I'll on the wrong side of the lake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Bill. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'll put those links in the show notes, any marketing assets you give us. And uh, yeah, check out Bill and his team from OneRail at all those conferences. Oh, I also hope to see you at Manifest. I'm going, I did not go to Manifest this year, but I will be there next year in Vegas in January. So yeah, they have a, they have a phenomenal show. We, we participated, couldn't have been happier with Manifest. I interviewed Pam from there and I'm going to interview Courtney from there and I didn't go. And I've talked to three or four people who said, oh, you got to go. And then when I talked to them, they said, well, you got to come next year. I said, I absolutely will. So yeah, good. Thank you so much. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. And, and by the way, thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated until next time onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.